0: Thank you once again, ladies. I have to be so careful because i I want to start humming along with them things too much, and I'm over here trying to lead the singing on it, you know, and I got to be careful because Andy's over there, he just threatening to <laughs> push the button up just a little bit, and then you'd all hear me up here, so I, I'm trying to restrain myself here and and then now next week Melvin's gonna be back there running because Andy's gonna be out of town. I'll feel safe then. I know I got some confidence there, but right now don't. And you heard last week what can happen too, if he gets a mean streak. Yeah, those of you that weren't here, you missed that. See what happens. So behave. And we do appreciate those who have given to the missions fund. It just takes a little bit from everybody. You, know, you ever stop and think just 5 or $10 a week from every person, what a difference that would make in what you could do in missions? See, it's not really much if you think of it that way. Just a little bit will go a long way. So let me encourage you to uh, participate and let's see if we can do something to, to uh, reach out with the gospel message. Let's turn to... Book of Psalms this morning, Psalm fifteen. Well, actually, let's turn to Second Samuel first. So, if you want to put your finger in Psalm fifteen and and then turn to Second Samuel chapter six, <coughs> I'm glad to see so many back. Last week, we got very nervous. <laughs> There were so many gone all at one time. We counted about at least 30 that were not here last week. So we thought, well, we're going we're gonna to close down for a moment there. But, uh, all those friendly faces are making me feel good this morning. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from uh, Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God again upon a new cart. Now you remember that David had gone down to get the ark, and because of uh, uh, the touching of it, uh, it had... uh, uh, caused death in the camp and David was distraught over that but he was determined it says to bring the the ark up to the city of God the ark of God and he wanted to bring it to David's city the city of David Mount Zion and he had a desire to have it nearby in his presence and then you find over in verse 10 it says David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-edom the Gittite so once this instance had occurred uh, of of this uh man dying because he touched the ark did it uh contrary to God's law God's word in which the sons of Kohath were to be the ones who transported the ark and it technically was not even supposed to be on a cart it was to be carried by hand on poles And so uh, David uh, was distraught over that and sent it to the house of Obed-Edom. And during the course of time that it was there, God blessed that house and all that was in his house. And so David once again then, in verse 12, determined that he was going to bring it up to uh, the ark of God, up to Mount Zion, to the city of David. And so... He says in verse 13, it was so that when they that uh, bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David uh, excuse me, um, And uh, uh, phew, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord, in verse 17, and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle, or the tent, that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So he pitched a tent when he brought it up to Mount Zion. And that was the locale for the ark. And, of course, as we read earlier back in verse uh, 2, that the cherubim on the ark represented the presence of God. And when the ark was actually in the tabernacle itself, then God came and resided amongst the people of Israel. That was his place of dwelling. And that was his presence amongst his people. Now, with that in mind... Let's turn back to Psalm 15 and this will give us the thought, the idea in the opening verse here of what David was trying to say. <clears throat> when he said, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Well, who will dwell in Who will abide in thy tabernacle? Who is it that has the privilege of entering into God's presence, there to abide with Him? Well, under the Old Testament economy, it was only the priest. And the high priest at that could only enter into the holiest, or the the most holy place, and that one time a year. And there to enter into the very presence of God. But it was David's desire to do so. He had a desire to be in the presence of God. And the best he could do was to pitch a tent and bring the ark there and place it in that tent in the city of David or the city of Zion. And then he asked the question also, Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now, Let's turn back, hold your finger there, and just turn back a couple pages, three or four pages, to the second Psalm. And in Psalm 2, a royal messianic psalm, the first one in the Psalter, states in verse 6 Yet have I set my king, or established, or appointed my king upon. My holy hill of Zion. Here he identifies the holy hill he's talking about. The hill of Zion. The very place where David took the ark. The very place where he pitched the tent. Only here he's speaking of the future and that coming day when God would set his ultimate king, Messiah, on a throne on his holy hill in Zion. And so that gives us the setting in which David was penning this psalm. And his question, who can do this? Who is it that can enter into the presence of God? Who is it that can abide with Him and dwell with Him? Abide means to have that privilege of being in His presence, dwelling, the idea of permanence. Who is it that can come and spend time with him? And he answers that in the next several verses. And so let's read these. In verse 2, he says, He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart, he that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth, honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. That is, never be moved from the presence of the Lord. Never be separated from the presence of the Lord. And that was ultimately David's desire and of course ought to be our desire as well. Now, he says there in verse 2, in answering this question, he says he that walketh uprightly. And that word uprightly, it was a it was a very interesting word. If you'll turn back to Exodus chapter 12, we'll get an idea of exactly how this word was used in another context. In Exodus chapter 12, of course, you know that has to do, do with uh, God's calling of Israel out of Egypt and the preparations for that time when they would actually leave Egypt. And so in verse 5, he says, well, he instructions about taking a lamb, each household, every family, a lamb. And in the fifth verse, he says, your lamb shall be without blemish. Your lamb shall be upright. No blemishes. Even uh, as that family would inspect that lamb that they were to choose, it was to have no blemish whatsoever. And anyway, the one they offered to the Lord. A male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep or from... The goats. It was to be an upright lamb, one without blemish. And so David says here, the person who is to abide or dwell in the presence of the Lord is one that walks without a blemish. That is, he has no taint upon his character. He is a man or a woman who walks in the steadfastness of their integrity. They walk in righteousness. They walk in a holy manner. <coughs> Excuse me. They walk in such a way that nothing can be questioned regarding their character and their integrity, the person they are. Now, he says also, he speaks the truth in his heart. And so their inner life is well-ordered. A thought just occurred to me, and now I'm trying to remember the name of this book. I think it's called Ordering Your Private World. And in this book, uh, and his name was uh, Gordon MacDonald, I believe was his name. Gordon MacDonald wrote a book about ordering your inner world, ordering your private life, putting things in order. And he used uh, Saul and David as examples of those who, who uh, as in the case of one who had their life in order, their inward life was right before the Lord, As opposed to the other, Saul, whose inner life was a turmoil and a mess. And consequently, he made a lot of wrong decisions in his life. Now, here he's talking about a person who speaks the truth in his heart. So his his inner life is right before the Lord. And he walks accordingly. He lives a life that emanates and projects the truth. It's more than just being honest. He's talking about a person who outwardly bespeaks that which is a a person who is in touch with God, a person who knows God. Then he talks about in verse 3, a person that backbiteth not with his tongue. Now that's a hard one for some of us. It's a hard one for me. Because it's too easy for me to be quick with the tongue. But the person who's going to dwell in the presence of the Lord is going to be a person who holds his tongue. He does not speak slanderously of his neighbor. He does not gossip. And I don't mean... I mean gossip in the sense of wagging the tongue. Speaking ill to the point where another person is hurt because of what you said. And we have too many conveniences today that allow us to do that. We can email, we can call on the phone, we can text message, we can do all kinds of things to communicate. And you know, you can bite your tongue, but once you click that button on an email or hit send on a text message, it's gone. And you can't get it back. It's over with. The message has gone forth, and it behooves us then to do, as David said here, to withhold the tongue, to keep it in check, and don't be, as James said, let your tongue fly and start a whole forest on fire because of what we say. That's not the kind of person that is really, truly going to enjoy the Lord's presence. You may be with the Lord, and that might be one thing for you and I to enjoy, to be be able to say, yes, I will be with the Lord. It's another thing altogether to be able to enjoy his presence and his nearness, to enjoy that intimacy, to enjoy the closeness of those who are particularly dear to his heart as it was even with the Lord Jesus, when he dealt with his 12 disciples and had three that were particularly close to him out of the 12. Or David, who had that group of men that were particularly close to him and intimately associated with him above and beyond all the others. And yet, even though they showed their loyalty to David, yet there were those who stood out, those who distinguished themselves before David. And there are those who will distinguish themselves before the Lord. There are those of us who if we walk according to his precepts, well, as it were, we will, you know, quote, stand out. It's just like having an awards banquet. Many awards may be given, but some awards are much greater than others. Some are more prominent than others. Some call for more applause and praise than others. And so this person here, he that backbiteth not with his tongue or speaks slanderously of his neighbor or withholds the gossip of his neighbor, has the greater privilege, has the greater honor and ability to have intimacy with the Lord and abide in his tabernacle or in his tent. You know, there were, interestingly enough, you think about it. Think about all the wealthy men in the Bible, like Abraham, who was one of the wealthiest men of his era, who could easily have built a home and a permanent dwelling place, but he didn't. He chose to live in a tent. And that's the mindset that Abraham had towards life on this earth. Why is that? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 that he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. He had another place he wanted to move to. He had a greater desire to abide and dwell there than he did here on this earth. Then he says, this person here who is going to dwell in the presence of the Lord and in his tabernacle, who will abide or dwell on his holy hill, is a person who doeth evil, uh, does no evil to his neighbor. Now, this this is an interesting word here as well. This word evil means to do, it's translated in a, in a number of ways. Uh, it means to do no wickedness to his neighbor. Or no evil in contrast to that which is good. And it's used that way several times. If you, if you look over, let's turn to Amos, to the little book of Amos over in the Minor Prophets. So you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. And Amos chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, you'll see the same word used here in contrast with the idea of doing good. He says in verse 14, Seek good and not evil. Well, that's the same word here. And he says then that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as you have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. That is, in the gate of the city where the uh, political and governmental decisions were made for that local community, he says that is the place where you need to learn to hate the evil and love the good. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Of course, here he's speaking, Amos speaking to that uh that remnant that would be returning from captivity, if they would learn to do these things, if they would learn to hate the evil and to love the good, to aspire to the good things of life and despise and reject the evil things. The uh, Greek word ponero is used in translating this word, which you probably well know that's where we get our English word for pornography. So when he talks about not doing evil to your neighbor, this this is a particularly heinous word. It speaks of very vile evil, doing absolute wrong to your neighbor. talks about speech as well. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, you might be uh, you might have already been thinking of this passage over here as soon as I read that. It made me think about this, this passage over here uh, in Ephesians chapter 5 in a passage that is, interestingly enough, talking about an inheritance in the kingdom and the qualifications for doing so. And so in Ephesians 5.1 he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Well, that's what David's talking about here. To be a one who dwells in the presence of God and to be a, uh, one who uh, abides in his tabernacle requires that we be a follower of his, a doer of his. And he tells us in verse 2 Walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. But fornication. And all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become the saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. You see, the same message that was given in the Old Testament through the lips and, and, the, and the pen of David is the same message that Paul speaks to you and I today in the New Testament, or under the New Covenant. And it is simply that we need to have an attitude change. We need to develop a spirit and a desire, in other words, a want to down in here, in the heart that wants to know God and that has a desire to walk with Him on a regular basis and on a daily basis. And he tells us there, this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And so the whole idea here of this, this, these character things, these character issues, prohibiting one from having any inheritance in the kingdom of God is the same thing that he is speaking about here in having a presence, a dwelling place on his holy hill. Because that holy hill, as we just saw from Psalm chapter 2, is the very place where the Lord, uh, God himself will install his son as king of the earth during the messianic rule. And so if we hope, if we desire, if we want to have any participation in that messianic rule, then it's going to behoove us to develop the kind of qualities and character traits that will allow us to do that that will allow us to receive that well-done, now good and faithful servant. And so, you know, coarse jesting, foolish talk, dirty jokes, or I think what is even worse is just innuendo or double talk. And we, we like to call those, uh, somehow we like to call those clean jokes, you know, where we use double talk, where we use a, a word that's, that's acceptable socially and publicly, but yet has a double meaning, and we all know it means something else. And then so we try to get a good laugh out of it. And that's what he's talking about here. Pornero, that kind of evil, that kind of wickedness that comes out of the inner man. Um, then he tells us in verse, uh, at the end of that verse, Nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. And that means just exactly what it says: in reproach, no reproach against your neighbor, no insults, no uh, disgrace, no contempt against your neighbor. And of course, I don't think he means anything here more than we know what the New Testament word, as Jesus applied it, means. When the rich young lawyer came, you know, asking about uh, the Lord what he must do to inherit eternal life, and the Lord told him, and he says, "Well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor?" And then he told him the story about the good Samaritan. And he asked him now, which one was neighbor to him that uh, stopped along the way? Was it the the priest who went out of his way to go around this guy who had been beaten up? Or was it the one, the Samaritan, the Gentile, who stopped and helped him on the way? And he said, well, the one that helped him. And he says, well, then you go do likewise. So that's what it means to be a neighbor. And he says here on the negative, the opposite, don't bring reproach against your neighbor. Do grace your neighbor. Do hold them in high regard and be a blessing to them. Verse 4, he says, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. Now that word contemned or contempt uh, is an interesting word. And it's interesting how this is translated Uh, Literally, Rotherham in his Bible, uh, his literal translation Bible says it this way. He says, despised in his sight is the reprobate. And Robert Young in his translation says, despised in his eyes is a rejected one. In other words, he's simply saying that the person who aspires and desires and understands what it takes... To enter into the presence of the Lord, to abide in his holy hill, understands what a rejected one is. And he, and he just like the Lord, despises that one. That's why you have what, so many psalms. We call them precatory psalms, which are very difficult and hard for some people to understand. Is How can they say such evil, bad things about their enemies? Well, they say them because God said it. Those who are the enemies of God, God holds in despite. He rejects them. And a word we use to call them that is a reprobate. And so he's saying, a person who aspires and desires to stand in the presence of God, to abide in his holy hill, is a person who does that thing. They understand who and what a rejected one is. And unfortunately... As we find so often, especially in the New Testament, the Lord says many, many in that day will come to me and say, Lord, haven't we done all these things? And then he's going to say to you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. They're going to be rejected. They're going to be turned away or disapproved and unqualified for any presence of the Lord in that day when he comes to establish his king on his holy hill. Now, he tells us also but he honors them that fear the Lord. You see, he is a person of discernment, a person of distinction. He is able to discern between them that fear and honor the Lord as opposed to the person who doesn't, the one who's rejected, or literally the rejected one, the reprobate person, the one who is unqualified, He knows how to do that. And not only does he know how to do that, he practices that. He practices that according as the Lord practices that rejection. Now, he that honors them that fear the Lord, he that swears to his own hurt and changeth not. Now that's a hard one. He swears to his own hurt or he swears to suffer evil. In other words, he's made up his mind. He will pay the price. This person swears to his own hurt. That is to say, if if, if swearing rightly before the Lord is going to cause him pain, if it's going to cause him to suffer, in order to abide in the presence of the Lord, in order to be established on His holy hill, then they're willing to take the pain. They're willing to take the suffering. They're willing to do whatever it takes. And so this person here, he says, doesn't change, doesn't vacillate. His mind is made up. He knows what he wants out of life. And he understands what it takes. In answering this question that David asked, he understands what it takes to abide in God's presence and enjoy that relationship with him. And then lastly, in the fifth verse, he says, He that putteth not out his money to usury. Now, by that, he just simply means he didn't lend his money out at interest. And in particular, to a, uh, a fellow brother. As a matter of fact, if you look back with me at Exodus chapter 22, you'll find it was absolutely forbidden. Look at Exodus chapter 22. And now, and as you think about this, and as we look at this verse, you'll under, you, know, you remember that in Exodus and Leviticus, God is laying out his precepts for theocracy. God is laying down his constitution for the government that he was in charge of and which Israel had agreed to live under. You remember they had agreed by covenant at Mount Sinai for God to be their God and they would be his people. And then he lays out his precepts for his government before them. And one of these precepts was, don't loan your money out at interest. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 25. He says there, if thou lend money to any of my people. Now that's a key consideration there. He says, if you lend money to any of my people, a fellow Jew, That is poor by thee, he says, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him, by by that the sun goeth down. For that is his covering only, it is his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious." In other words, simply not taking advantage of the poor. When you took a man's pledge, which was generally his cloak, if you kept it overnight and said, Look, I'm holding on to it till you pay me back, the Lord didn't look very kindly on that. It was all he had to sleep in to cover himself at night. The poor man. And so he demanded that you, when the sun went down and the chill came in the air, You return that cloak to him so he would have something to sleep in that night and keep warm. Now, you could take the pledge back the next day, and you could do that over and over until he finally repaid the loan and you weren't to charge him interest on it either. So he holds this back here in Psalm 15 in very high regard, that if you expect to abide in the Lord's presence, then you better treat your fellow man with respect. When it comes to finances. And you better do right by that person. Nor, he says, does he take reward against the innocent. No bribes. He cannot be bought. His character is not for sale. His integrity doesn't have a price on it. He is going to stand firm in a righteous walk before the Lord. And he is not going to allow these things to dissuade him in any way. And he says, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. That is, he will not be moved away from the prospect of dwelling on his holy hill of Mount Zion. He will not be moved from his prospect of sharing in the future rule of Messiah over this earth in his kingdom. He can't be moved from that. If you'll look over just a couple of pages at Psalm 24, David there again lays down the same principle. The same principle. He says in verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein for he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods verse 3 who shall ascend into the hill of the lord or who shall stand in his holy place well you remember under the old testament economy now nobody could only the high priest could actually stand in the holy or the, or the priest could actually stand in the holy place and only the high priest in the most holy place it was not possible to go here. Even the Lord Jesus, when he was upon the earth, never entered into the temple. Now, he entered into the temple court area where everybody else was allowed. But being from the tribe of Judah and not a Levi, even he could not enter there legally. But now that Christ has died on the cross, now that he has paid the ultimate sacrifice... Now that the veil has been rent in two, the way is open for us to enter in. But it better be under the precepts that David lays down here by the ministry of the Holy Spirit when he says, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. You know, to have clean hands means that you can't be accused of anything. That's that's the upright person or the person without blemish back in Psalm 15 in verse 2. It's the same person. He has clean hands. There is nothing with which he can be charged to be guilty of. And then he says also a pure heart. You see, it's the inward and the outward both. And by now, I hope you're thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you're thinking about the message that the Lord Jesus Christ gave concerning His kingdom and preparation for entering the kingdom. And it took more than just not being a murderer, not being a thief, and so on, not being an adulterer, but it also took a heart that was not an adulterer. It took a a heart that was not a thief. It was, also took a heart. That didn't speak evil against his neighbor. It's the same message. It is no different. Jesus Christ was laying down the precepts. For the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5. Chapter 6. Chapter 7. And he said. You have heard it was said. But I say unto you. And when he when he was making the statement you have heard that it was said he was speaking about those outward things of murder and adultery and so on but I say unto you and he turned him to the heart he that hath clean hands yes the outward is important but he said you are neglecting the inward he that has a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn Deceitfully. He is pure and honest through and through, and there is nothing hidden within this person. Nothing. We call them today in our modern lingo, uh, we would call them a transparent person. They're simply very open. And not only are they open to share with you their inmost feelings and being, is because they can do so, they have nothing to hide. see, they have that purity and that cleanliness that allows them to do so. It's the person who doesn't have it that withholds and doesn't want to bear their, as we would say it, bear their soul to you or show their transparency. And so here, this person, of course, David, if there was anybody in the Scriptures that was transparent besides the Lord, it had to be King David, I think, and that's evidenced in the Psalms that he wrote. He laid his soul bare. Before the Lord. And he did so by the pen. And these were preserved and recorded for us. That we might know the kind, of, the kind of qualities, the kind of character, the kind of trait that the Lord is looking for to share in and serve in his kingdom with him. Verse 5 says, He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. These are the ones. These are the ones who will dwell in his presence. These are the ones who will stand in his holy place and ascend unto the hill of the Lord as these who manifest these character qualities. Now, I don't know if I should take the time to do this, but maybe I should just briefly run over to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Now, it's going to be a mighty, huge, big temptation to look through this entire chapter, but we obviously don't have time for that. So let's just pick out a few things here that point to us the same kinds of things that David was saying in Psalm 15, as well as in Psalm 24. And then we might understand, then might we understand 2 Samuel chapter 6 and why it was so important for David to bring the ark up to the city of Zion. Why it was so important to David to be able to pitch a tent and have the ark right there with him in his presence. He's talking here in Ezekiel 18 Of course, the the people of Israel are are in Babylon. They're in captivity. And there was a proverb going around. You'll see it in verse verse, uh, 2. He says in verse 1, The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? And this proverb was saying this, that they understood that when the fathers sinned, it was passed down to the son. And so each successing generation had to pay for the sins of their fathers. Well, why was that important? Well, they were saying, hey, we're over here in Babylon, we're suffering, we're innocent, we are paying for the sins of our fathers. And the Lord's purpose in this entire chapter is to correct that whole idea and say, no, that's not so at all. Each person will stand and pay for his own sin. Each individual person will be held accountable for his own deeds. And you are not here in Babylon paying the price for your father's sins. You're here paying the price for your own sins. Now, of course, it was the sins of many generations that ultimately led to God putting his people in captivity for that 70 years. But it was not their previous generation's sins. It was their generation as well. And so he gives three examples. He gives an example of a father, and then of a son, and then, if we read into it correctly, a grandson. Three generations here. The first generation... Um, does that which is right. The second generation doesn't do what is right, but yet the third generation then turns back and does what is right. And he's simply saying that in each of these, each one will stand accountable for his own actions, not the actions of someone else. And so they were complaining. In verse 25 then it says, You say the way of the Lord is not equal. Here now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal and not your ways unequal? In other words, this whole idea, unequal, he was thinking it's actually the word balance. So you think of the scales, and you think of the idea of just and being right. And they were accusing the Lord of having unjust scales, being unequal or out of balance. And God told him, no, it's not my ways that are out of balance, it's your ways. You are out of balance. You're thinking incorrectly. You're not right about what you're saying here about the sins of the fathers. And this proverb ultimately one day is going to be done away with. And you're going to find out just what the ways of the Lord are. Well, he says in verse 26, When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies in them for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die. Or maybe I should say it with more emphasis. That he hath done, shall he die. And so in verse 27, again, when the wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. This is how you save your soul. You save your soul by doing what is right, according to Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, so that, you can enter into the presence of the Lord. It's one thing, see, as Israel did, to have passed through, uh, passed under the blood, through the waters of baptism of the Red Sea, passed out on the other side into the wilderness, and now belonging to the Lord. From that point on, he called them his people. But later, they entered into covenant relationship with him. Later, there developed a responsibility on their part to obey him. And so he tells us here in this passage regarding... Now, remember, he's talking about these Israelites in Babylon. He's talking about these who ultimately and and soon would be brought back to the land of Israel. They would be reestablished in the land. And he's just simply saying to them, if you will do right, then this will happen. He says in verse 28, Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, The way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal and are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways saith the Lord. The Lord God, repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. I was looking at Charles Feinberg's commentary, and he made it very clear here that this, the context here was messianic. It has to do with the coming messianic rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to participate, if you're going to share in that ultimate blessing, that he's talking about, or in Psalm 24, he called it blessing and salvation, because in the Old Testament economy, this salvation was pointing to participation in the messianic rule. then he said you're going to have to repent. You're going to have to turn and do the right works of the Lord. You're going to ha-, and, and he says, if this, this one who's committing iniquity, if he turns and does these things, then he says, you'll live. But the righteous one, who does the other way, he goes back or backslides and commits iniquity, then he says he shall die. So what's the point? Well, on a temporal basis, they were physically going to die or they physically would live. But ultimately, when it comes to the messianic rule, he's talking, when he says you shall live, you will live or have the life of the Messiah in His kingdom. So what He's trying to tell us there then, He says, when you die or, well, excuse me, when you face the Lord in judgment, because that's what He's talking about, they're going to be judged, each one according to His ways. When you face the Lord in judgment, It is your character at that point in time that's going to determine how you will be judged. So that behooves us then to be in a right relationship with the Lord at all times. It would have done us no good to have been considered and declared to be righteous for 20, 30, 40, 50 years of our life. Then turn back, die in that condition, and then expect that God's going to overlook all that and look at those previous years of righteousness or doing right and then think that God's going to overlook that and say, well done, because he's not going to do that. That's not the message he's giving us here. Consequently, in verse 31, he says, cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. Now, listen, he is talking to his people. He is not talking to unsaved people here. He's talking about you and I. He is talking about the one here who needs a new heart. You need to have a new spirit. Or basically he's saying you need to develop a new attitude. If you are holding out the hope of participation with Christ in his coming kingdom, then we need to have a new heart. What did David say when he sinned? Psalm 51. Create in me, O Lord, a... Clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. Now, I'm not quoting that exactly, but that was what David, that's what David was saying. David understood that when you repent, when you confess, it requires that you have a new heart and a new spirit, a new whole new attitude for why will you die, O house of Israel? Well, that's the consequence if you don't, you will die. And see, to not experience or have the life, millennial life, the life, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Well, that's not now. He's talking about the future. And so if you want to experience the life of the kingdom, then we must follow these precepts. If we don't, then the consequence is death. And to not experience millennial life is to experience death. And so verse 32, he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. That is not God's desire. It brings no pleasure to him for us to be obstinate and absolutely refuse to turn from our evil ways, our sinful ways. So when we have these things come before us and we know we've done wrong or we know we are doing wrong, whichever the case may be, what does he expect of us? To immediately turn, to immediately repent, confess, and forsake that sin or that wrong. He has no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. If you turn, if you confess, if you repent, then we have the promise of life. We have the promise. And so that ultimately then fulfills the answer to David's question. Who is going to abide in my tabernacle? Or who will dwell on my holy hill? It is the person who walks with God. It is the person who develops a holy life, maintains that life, and dies in that condition. And if you want to read more about that, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And he tells us there, the condition that we are in spiritually when we die is the condition in which we are going to meet the Lord at his judgment seat. And so it behooves us to walk in a right manner. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the assurance and the confidence of Your Word. David felt that confidence. He didn't feel defeated in spite of the sin that he had committed, but he simply came with a contrite and broken heart, confessing his sin before You with an ultimate desire to be in Your presence. And he, I, he, just, he wanted to be near You, Father, and, and I pray that You would just burn in my heart that desire to want to be near you at all times, to be uh, as one who is in your very presence at any given moment. I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of that torn veil that allows us into your presence where we might confess our sin, where we might lift our hearts in adoration and praise to you and thanksgiving for all that you have accomplished to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Savior. Bless us, I pray, Father, that we would go forth with joy and rejoicing in all that you've accomplished for us. For we pray today, in Jesus' name, amen. And if you have an urgent need or a desire, or if you just want to come and pray, then we want to give you just an opportunity to do that. Or if you want to join our fellowship, we want to give you that opportunity as well. Three forty nine, verse four. Let's stand as we sing. <laughs>